We're going to start with Diane's incredible archaeological find. Do you want to introduce it? translator's notes. These recently discovered documents appear to be the diary entries by the pharaoh from the time of Joseph and the pharaoh from the time of Moses. Much scholarly debate has centered on why all the entries are marked Sunday. The current majority view holds that as the pharaoh was thought to be descended from the sun god, all the days were called Sunday. <laughs> Sunday. Jeez, am I tired. Hardly slept last night. Had the weirdest dreams. Six healthy fat cows got eaten by six scrawny sickly cows, and the scrawny cows stayed scrawny. Such a creepy dream. It woke me up. Finally fell back to sleep and dreamt that six juicy ears of corn were devoured by six dried up ears. I've got to find out what this means. Sunday. So annoying. None of my advisors, diviners, or magicians can interpret my dreams. I think they're scared to tell me what they think. Sunday. Dear diary, good news. Seems I had a prisoner named Joseph who's good with dreams. Brought him to the palace and wow, very impressive. <laughs> Turns out the dreams mean that six years of good crops and prosperity will be followed by six years of famine. And this Joseph fellow has a plan so that my kingdom will not perish. So I made him my chief viceroy, dressed him in fine cloth, I gave him gold jewelry and a really hot wife. Finally, I can sleep knowing he's in charge. Sunday, dear diary. Sorry I haven't written for a while, but things have been really busy here. Actually, I've mostly been partying while Joseph took charge and I gotta say, did a terrific job. Events went as he predicted, prosperity then famine in the whole region. But we were sitting pretty with warehouses full of grain. Folks came from all over to buy my grave. Yay! Even Joseph's brothers and fathers came. He never mentioned them before. Anyway, they came with all their kinsmen. We didn't charge them. Even gave them choice land to settle on. I don't mind, since we're making money hand over fist selling grain to everyone else. Oi, I don't even want to think where I'd be without Joseph. Sunday. Bit of a problem. People have run out of money to buy my grain. <laughs> Sunday. Dear diary, that Joseph is brilliant. He let people trade their land for bread. <laughs> All nice and legal, signed and sealed, and they will still have their land to farm. It just belongs to oh. me. Now I own everything and everyone, lol. It's good to be king. <laughs> Sunday. Dear diary, the famine is over and my serfs are growing abundant crops again. Some are working for me in the building trades, and the best of these I've made my managers with appropriate compensation for keeping things running smoothly. My wealth is increasing and everyone is happy. My managers tell me of no troubles at all. Mm. No more entries from this author have been found. <laughs> now this is from the Next, diary. Sunday, dear diary, you won't believe this. A guy named Moses wants to take all my builders and some of my farmers too into the wilderness for a week-long prayer retreat. Ah, <laughs> fat chance. The economy would grind to a halt, some comedian. Sunday, 
It gets funnier and funnier. He says his God sent him, and get this, the name of his God, I will be what I will be. <laughs> Someday. <laughs> Dear diary, a little less funny. Moses has magic. He turned the water into blood. I'll admit, I was a bit freaked out, but the water is regular again, and I'm standing firm. These are my people, and I won't let them stop work for a week. We have contracts and agreements that were signed fair and square generations ago. Perhaps I'll tighten the reins a bit. Can't have them walking all over me. Someday, dear diary, I am not smiling. Moses brought more magic. Flies, lice, hail, yuck. I gave in and said, go already, but just for a week. Then I thought, wait a minute. Who's in charge here? Me. There are laws, leases, obligations. My workers must work. Give in to vacation demands, and you start down a slippery slope. The whole system could collapse. Someday, Moses threatens worse magic. I don't believe him. After all, his people suffered too with the locusts and darkness and all. He's bluffing, and I won't give in. Someday, woe is me. My grief knows no bounds. My son is dead, my firstborn, my beloved child. I curse that magician, Moses, and all his people. I banish them from my lands forever. Sunday, dear diary, the funerals are over. So many dead. Every family is affected. Such loss. And I've been thinking, why should they get away with this? I will ride with my army into the wilderness and slaughter them. My power is great. We will show no mercy. No more entries from this author have been found. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. What was, it? you remember the impetus we were talking about? Yes, well, we had that class before Pesach, and I don't remember exactly what it said, but some, some things that were discussed in that class came out of this. And, you know, there are two sides to every story. I, as some of you know, I am a landlord. and um, But only on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> and I try to be a good landlord, but I'm very aware of the imbalance of power. Huh. And, you know, I think about these things a lot. Thanks. Did you write that? Yeah. That's great. Wow. That is Thank wonderful. You. Thank you. Thank you, Diane. Jerome? I was reading uh, about Sigmund Freud's book that Moses was an Egyptian. Are you familiar with that? Of course. Moses And there seems to be a lot of agreement. Among who? Well, among a lot of people who wrote about it. One of the things to think, I would say, to thread that needle, I mean, nobody knows anything about Moses because we have, no, we have no actual, aside from the stories in the Torah, we have no corroborating evidence that he even existed. We know he had an Egyptian name, right? Um, and, that, and according to the story, he grew up in the Pharaoh's palace. So all I like to say about that is that it took somebody who knew how to navigate the halls of power in order to uh, lead the revolution. You know, he couldn't just be a slave who didn't know the language of, uh, of the leadership 
and the way they operated. But we don't know anything yeah. about him. And Freud's book is fascinating, mm -hmm. um, but there's no way to prove any of it. Yeah. Well, that's why the story includes him being brought up in the, in the palace. That's the idea. Yeah. Right, right. He's a bound, he somehow can live, ha, he touches both worlds, yeah. Maybe uh. Diane will find the DNA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see what Diane comes up with next. Yes, thank you. Um, also, before we begin, I don't want to talk politics. What I want to do is acknowledge from reading the news and the emails that are streaming into my computer <laughs> that the, um, the, the, uh, the deal that... Um, uh, the United States is made with uh, Iran and those other six countries that is now waiting for Congress to ratify or not has raised emotions to a pitch in the Jewish world, right? We actually don't know what's going to happen, but we do know that it's freaking people out. So I just want to say that once, I'd love to talk about it, but not during class today. I just want to say another opportunity for when someone disagrees with you here in the synagogue to take a deep breath and recognize that they have an opinion. <laughs> and opinions don't kill each other here, you know. So I know that what happens in the Jewish community now that I've been doing this a long time is that people get really mad at each other for disagreeing. And so I've learned from hard experience that that's when grown-ups remember when they're talking to someone who they disagree with that it doesn't have to ruin their friendship. Okay? okay. That's all I want to say about it. When can we talk about it? <laughs> oh, right, right, right. Sure, sure. But this, that's not the topic of this class, that's all. Um, so uh, my job as rabbi, I learned, is not to um, predict the future, but to remind us of how we uh, are, how to, our best selves and how we want to be with each other in the world. That's my biggest job, since I have no idea what's going to happen next week even. Um, and I'm certainly not privy to what happens in the halls of power. So uh, that's what I wanted to say about it. But we do have control over how we behave in our beloved community. <sighs> and I, I, I wish I could sit in every synagogue yeah. and remind people of that because I know it's a hard one lesson for me to know that that's the most important thing. Mm. Phew! Yes? It's hard to, uh, for me to understand why people get into that situation because I, any Jew I know wants the best for it's just they disagree yeah. how it's going to how the best way to go about it. Right. So I don't get mad, or I don't think people should get mad if someone thinks that there is, you know, the better solution. But it's not like somebody is against, you know, mm -hmm. a good outcome. Everyone wants a good outcome. Certainly in our congregation, just, I'm a, I believe that I don't completely. Think I believe 100% mm -hmm. want a good outcome. That's so nicely put. It's why... Why get mad at somebody if they think... Well, anger, anger is, and again, this is my conviction, anger, mostly in these cases, is on top of terror. terror. Right? Yeah. We're terrified. Yeah. Why? Because people have tried to kill us for thousands of years. 
So we're terrified if we identify with the Jewish project. And it becomes a real challenge, but also a spiritual task to not let ourselves be run by fear, conscious or unconscious, and let that spill into anger and into mistreating people who just have a different opinion than us. That doesn't mean there's not times to be afraid. It doesn't mean that Jews aren't in danger in the world. It doesn't mean, it means that a lot of that comes from uh, accumulated fear, both individually and culturally. And uh, that's uh, challenging. Carol? You just reminded me of something quite wonderful. The movie in, Inside Out. Yes. Which everybody should see, <laughs> yes, without a doubt. Which is about the emotions that go on in a little girl's brain. It's an animated feature about the inside of this girl's brain. And I heard the director on the radio, and he said that the son of one of one of the animators, or what, what's one of the employees of uh, uh, Pixar, ha, was a, a eleven-year-old son was a really good swimmer, but was really afraid of diving. And the day after he saw the movie, he went to the pool and he got up on the diving board and he went right in. And when his father said what happened, he said. I saw the fear was ruling, and I didn't want that to happen. Oh, <laughs> oh that's wonderful. So he watched the movie, and he learned that. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. It's a wonderful movie. Bob, I saw it twice. <laughs> really? Yes. That's lovely. Beautiful. Beautiful. Once because we wanted to, and once because our daughter wanted to take it. Oh, that's yeah. lovely. It's really, everybody should see it at least once a year. Yeah. <laughs> And also the discussion reminds me of the prayer that some people say before they eat. What? Something about they tried to kill us, they lost. Oh, the, the short, oh, it's a joke. It's called the short history of Jewish holidays. They tried to kill us. We're still here. Let's eat. That's the short history of Jewish holidays. Well, it reminds me of the quote that's in our prayer book. It's one of the below the, below the line quotes from... Um, uh, Mordecai Kaplan, which says, it's not the seeking after God that divides, divides people. It's the, well, the, like the claim to have found the one true yeah. God and the only way to worship that divides people. Okay. So as I said, I am eager to talk about this. I am aware of how little I uh, know, um, it, both in terms of my access to information and in terms of what the world's going to look like in five years or ten years, especially given how the Middle East has fallen apart in the last five years. So all of that's true. So I'll be happy to spout off, but with all those caveats. Okay? <laughs> I'm always happy to spout off. <laughs> all right. Okay, yes, and we should be having these conversations. It's on the table, and it's like, um, there's a lot going on. <sighs> Thank you. Now, let's say our blessing. Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotav, V'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah. Amen. Since last week, when we were talking about the daughters of Tzlovchad, I alluded, and then we moved to the very end of the book of Numbers, where they come up again, I, didn't, I, I decided I wanted to do a different subject today, which is why I didn't hand out the books. One of the ways I decide often where to go and how to go always 
actually not often, is by looking at the Jewish calendar and seeing where we are in the Jewish calendar. Because the Jewish calendar is like, I like to live in the Jewish calendar. We are now in the middle of a period known as the three weeks, or also known in Hebrew as Bein HaMitzarim, in the narrow place, in the constricted place, not Egypt. The three weeks is the weeks between the 17th of Tammuz, which is the month that is ending tomorrow, and the 9th of Av, Tisha B'Av. Um, most, most, most of us have heard, Tisha B'av, heard of Tisha B'Av. Hi, Susan. Most of us have heard of Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av is a fast day on the Jewish calendar when we fast in memory of the destruction of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, both the first temple in 586 BCE and the second temple in the year 70 CE. Bob, I asked him to bring a coin he has from the year 67, a shekel, so he could show it to us, so we have it in our hands, which is an amazing, amazing thing. Again, many of us have heard this before, but I want to I contextualize. Prior to the Holocaust, these were the greatest cataclysms in Jewish history. Um, our, not just our political center, but the center where in ancient times our people truly, firmly believed was the holy mountain where our God lived, was destroyed. And... We lost our sovereignty, and some unknown hundreds of thousands of Jews, maybe millions all around the Mediterranean basin and the Roman Empire were slaughtered in a period of not one year, but you know, 50 or 60 years. And um, we, uh, we were sent into exile, the condition known as, as diaspora. Uh, so all of that happened. It was a moment in Jewish history where it wasn't clear whether we'd get through, what was going to happen, what Judaism would be in the wake of having our whole infrastructure destroyed. Um, some of us are familiar with the book uh, The Jew and the Lotus, written uh, 20 years ago by, 25 years ago by Roger Kamenetz, where the Dalai Lama having his people having experienced a similar destruction and dislocation, actually invited a delegation of Jewish leaders and teachers to meet with him, to say, how do you do this? How do you survive in exile? Right? It wasn't an instant solution. It took centuries for Judaism to reconstitute itself. Um, and we're in the midst, I would say, of a similar period of time where of incredible cataclysm and restructuring of Jewish life in the wake of it in the 20th century and now in the 21st. History will tell what Judaism became after this century. We're in the middle of it. We don't know. Does that make sense, everybody? So, it, so many contemporary Jews and contemporary Jewish scholars are very interested in comparing the first century to the 20th century because we, we, we sense how enormous the shift has been over the last, not just since the Holocaust, 
but since the liberation from the ghettos in the 19th century to this moment, how Judaism is almost... Uh, there's a sense of continuity, but also a sense of incredible disruption and uncertainty about what it's going to mean to be a Jew. Um, an interesting class to offer and a conversation to have would be the question of who's a Jew is so alive right now because the pre-modern definition, we all know who a Jew is, a Jew was not a goy, right? right? We were in these contained communities where you knew who a Jew was, right? It ain't true anymore. Now it's totally up in the, it's like someone threw all the cards in the air trying to figure it out. And um, uh, they were in a similar situation in the first century. There, what, what did it mean to be a Jew? Who was a Jew? Uh, you know, there was no such thing as conversion to Judaism before the first century. It was a, something you inherited. You were born into it. And a whole new definition of Judaism emerged over time out of that cataclysm. So as a student of Jewish history, uh, it's important to kind of recognize how, how momentous and cataclysmic uh, that time was. Uh, yes. Including the uh, Jesus and the Jews. Oh, sure. Jesus was, Christianity was one of the outcomes of, of that. that disruption. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What? When did conversion to Judaism begin? I read a book about it recently uh, by a, a guy named Shia Cohen. I think he's from Harvard. It was real, because it's so interesting to me. He can't pin it down, except to say, you can find out when it first gets talked about, you know, and it's in the first century. Mm -hmm. In the first century. Uh, yes, Stu? This is something that it goes back, and it's a little off. When did they... Okay, as long as we're forewarned. <laughs> when did they first decide that Yudhei was a verb and not a noun, the way we use it today, many of us? Probably about 50 years ago. So it wasn't really back in, the, in 2,000 back in years ago. It was not that constant. Um, uh, it's not talked about, yeah. other than it's a name that cannot be pronounced, right. or uh, it's ineffable. But now it, and therefore, that sets us up to say, what makes a name ineffable? And then when you look at the origin story, it's because it's not a name that you can fix, because it's, um, changing. it's changing. But no, no, that's a very contemporary and useful 20th, 21st century take. In a, in a time when our cosmic map is one of continuous expansion from the Big Bang as opposed to static spheres, uh, of, not static, but uh, fixed spheres in the heavens. So if the cosmos isn't fixed anymore, then our concept of God also changes to um, accommodate our understanding of the universe, is how I would describe it. Um, and uh, we're always changing our conceptions based on our largest cosmology. Uh, I didn't understand. How is it a verb? What did Stu say? Oh, well, the name that is revealed to Moses is a verb. Oh. I, am, I am becoming what I am becoming. And it became then a noun? Um, no, it's just that it's never discussed as, wow, God's name is a verb until recently. And I think what we're doing is, because Judaism has so many appellations for the deity, which is a helpful thing, right? Because you can, 
you know, then every age is going to draw from that resource for the way that our understanding will best be aligned with. So it's very beautiful that the, the revelation of God's name at the burning bush is a verb, but it's not something that I've ever seen discussed until modern times. Does that make sense? Yeah, but there, in, in the Torah there are many other... Many, many. The source of living waters, the breath of all life, the Lord, the King, the place, the Spirit. Yes, so it's clear from seeing how many names there are that we are being stupidly reductionist to think that there was a name of God that um, our ancestors fixed on. Of course, next year we'll learn about the connection between Judaism and Christianity. Oh, so you saw the... <laughs> you, yes, Thank you. that's my goal. That's my goal. You saw the listings if you received the, our emails. The, all of the information is now on the Lev Shalem Institute website. We've had a lot of fun putting a calendar together for next year. And our Thursday class, st starting in October after the Jewish holidays, is going to be co-led by Reverend Matthew Wright, who is the uh, uh, Episcopal priest at St. Gregory's down the road. And uh, we've had a great time getting to know each other and decided we'd like to teach together. So we're going to do our Thursday class for nine weeks on Judaism and Christianity origins, and I'm going to learn a lot too. Susan? That's why we're teaching the course. That's good because, I mean, he, he taught, he's Jewish and he taught some good things. And, you know, we don't believe he's the Son of God, like the Son of God. Let me make one statement about that, and then you'll have to save it for the fall since it's waited 2,000 years already. <laughs> what we are going to compare rabbinic teachings from the first century to the teachings of Jesus and find out that they are basically aligned. So that the history of separation is something that comes after the life of Jesus. Okay, we're gonna learn about that, but not now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, the next point I wanna make is that this three week period of mourning does not come from just the first century. But Judaism has an, a, his, a history, almost a formative history, of exile and return. There was a previous destruction and exile in the era of the Babylonian Empire. The first temple, which was built by King Solomon sometime in the 9th century BCE, was destroyed in the 6th century BCE. So you hear that 600 years before um, the second temple was destroyed by the Romans by the Babylonians. The year was 586 BCE. Uh, that destruction also resulted in the deportation of the Jewish leadership to Babylonia, to Babylon, by the rivers of Babylon, 
There we sat and wept as we remembered Zion. That psalm is written in the 6th century BCE. When the Babylonian Empire fell and the Persian Empire, ironically, right? Oh, that's another thing I was thinking when I was reading the news. Um, These players have been around a long time. We have, they have, this is like, Whatever the news is this week, this is a long story. Been there, done that. Been there, done that, over and over and over again. So the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonian Empire. The Persian Emperor, Cyrus King, allowed the Jews of Babylon to return to Um, uh, Judea, that's what it was called at the time, the province of Judea, and reestablished their temple there. And as, not as an independent nation, but as a province, as long as they paid their taxes to Persia, they had a charter that allowed them to reestablish their temple. When they reestablished the temple in the 5th century BCE, that was known as the Second Temple. So, uh, I, huh? And before that, the other tribes had been switched around. Right. By the time the Jews returned from, the Judeans returned, they may not, they were sort of starting to be called Jews, sort of, which comes from Judeans. By the time they returned from what was now Persia to Jerusalem in the fifth century, the other ten tribes had long been dispersed and we don't know anything more about them. Those are called the Ten Lost Tribes. But I don't want to make this all a history lesson. Uh, I want to give you the context for, uh, uh, for a whole... I'm going to do... Oh, by the way, I'm doing history. I'm doing... We're, we're jumping around today. Yeah. Well, but weren't, weren't there some Hebrew Jews in Judea, and didn't they have their own... Uh, Commentary on the Torah. I that, were, sorry, uh, that's after the second destruction. Oh, that's later. That's oh. called the, the Palestinian Talmud versus the Babylonian oh, Talmud. That's later. And that's later. Exactly. However, what did happen when you read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, the, la- la- the, the, the latest historical books of the Bible, which, which document the return from Babylon, from, from Babylon now Persia, uh, is that when the original exile had happened, it seems that only the, not, we don't know, primarily it appears the elite, the priesthood, the royalty that had been deported in a political move by the Babylonians to... To reduce the power of the... Right, of the, right, but not all the Jews. Yeah. And so when 90 years later or something like that, they start, or 100 years later, they start returning... Um, there's still a Jewish population there, and you can tell, reading between the lines, it's major conflict. Um, again. What's new? <laughs> right, right. But where does the Iran hatred of Israel come from? Uh, this is 20th century stuff. It is. It's not, that's no, there was an Iran. No. A Jewish community continued to live, to live in, in Persia yeah. and in Baghdad for 2,500 years. Right. It is only since 1948 that that community right. has been dismantled and, and kicked out, uh-huh. both in Iran and in present-day Iraq. Uh, no, this is a modern phenomenon. 
okay? Yeah. It's a phenomenon of East and West, of post-World War I, of oil. It's all that stuff. Um, and that's another conversation. But that's because the, through, the thread that runs through this is that uh, the, the political and power allegiances just continue to shift almost like sands on a beach over history when you can step back and look at, say, 3,000 years. Um, Jeremiah, prophets Isaiah, they talk about the, 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 the emperor to the north, the, empire, the Egyptians to the south, the Phoenicians. And so, you know, it's a fascinating, sort of, again, it's good to step back, hold on, it's good to step back and imagine it all as shifting sands on a, a, and somehow, and again, without, without uh, I don't posit divine hands in all this. It's not my thing. But it sure is amazing that those sands have shifted in a way that we're back <laughs> in our ancestral homeland after not having sovereignty for 19 centuries. It's pretty astounding. And then to have the same players all around is also pretty astounding. Uh, yes, Susan? Well, I was just going to say that, I mean, we were Russia's ally in the Second World War, and Germany was our enemy, and now Germany's our ally. Right, and it's happening so... so it happens all around. Uh, I am now alive long enough, as are you, to have watched boundaries, to know that national boundaries are completely fluid. Yeah. Right? Yeah. In our lifetimes, right. we think of nations as fixed, as, you know, this is our heritage, this is our... Nothing's fixed. Boundaries, now the Sykes-Picot Agreement that carved up the Middle East is history. The Sykes-Picot Agreement was the one that created Iraq, Transjordan, Syria in the boundaries that we know today. Right? That was France and Britain sp splitting up the oil uh, booty. That's all it was. And installing their leaders. In After World War I. Yeah. So it's 100 years later. And we are watching in the last four years what's been called the Arab Spring and then turned into this mess. We are, we are watching the Sykes-Picot Agreement become, become something in the history books. Right? Those boundaries are meaningless now. And we're watching it happen. So just think, if that's what we can see in a short period of time, so that's, that's history. Um, so it behooves all of us, by the way, and now I'm preaching, it behooves all of us not to think about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict unless we think about it in the context of geopolitics. Okay? The first Madrid talks that led to the Oslo Agreement only happened because the Soviet Union collapsed and the Palestinians lost their patron. Right? That's why it happened. It's not because Arafat woke up one day and said, I think I'll make a peace agreement. <laughs> and, and the same is true for... We don't know what's going to happen with Israel if space starts appearing between the U.S. and Israel. We don't, we just don't, you know, I hope it doesn't happen, but I'm just saying, things are always changing. Chill, everybody, you know, because we're, there's a lot we're not in control of when it comes to geopolitics. It's really like tidal forces that are much greater. We can do what we can, but if, if you want to live your life and your sense of well-being based on these shifting sands, I don't want to do that with you. Right? I, want to, I, I want to retain some perspective, um, which is hopefully what I learned to do by being, a, by being an amateur student of history and by paying careful attention to geopolitical forces.
So, again, that's my little preaching, is try to get the big picture always, both historically and geopolitically, while you assess what's going on. <sighs> yes? So the story continues. The story continues. And that is really the story. That's a great just, line. And so, a thousand years from now, they could tell this story and put it up against you know, the exodus from Egypt, etc., right. etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, et cetera. And somehow, I have a feeling that we Jews are going to be doing that. Yes. <laughs> There's something about uh, the, Jewish, the Jewish cultural DNA that's going to, we're going to stick around. But I don't know in what form, and I don't know how, and I know there's going to be lots of more ups and downs because of the place we uh, sit in the collective human uh, uh, psyche, I guess you'd say. I don't know what the right word is. Yeah, yeah, but yes, so a thousand years from now. And so then it becomes important to distinguish between mythical history and whatever we can do as sort of objective historians, whatever that means, with all the caveats that that includes. In mythical history, it's really fascinating, and this is where I actually want to go right now. I wanted to give you the outlines. Um, In the... Here, let me pass this around. This will be our text for today to sort of refer to. I'll keep one. No, it was a completely different structure. In fact, if you'll indulge me, um, the second temple that was built in the 400s uh, by Jews who had returned from Babylonia was, by all accounts, a very modest structure. This was, this was, it was not, and that was known as the Second Temple. When King Herod, who had great aspirations, sort of the Donald Trump of his time, I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. Um, he wanted to, he, he was very well connected to Cleopatra, to Rome, and he was, he was, this is documented, and he wanted to make Jerusalem a pilgrimage site, you know, that would rival anything in the Roman Empire. He took the Second Temple and transformed it into what we think of when we think of the Second Temple. That, so it was, it was more like, a, what do you call it when you buy a house and wreck it and then build a bigger one on the lot? Uh, a tear, it was more like a teardown than a renovation. Um, I think that's fair to say. From, so, so the second temple has two iterations. One is the one from the 5th century BC, and then there's the incredibly grand structure that King Herod made it into in around the year zero. Right. And then until, until after, you know, it took 30 or 40 years to build, yeah. So, so the location is the same. But the location the is temple, the same. Yeah, the temple now is the same. And the, that's the Wailing Wall today. The Wailing Wall today is actual, no. The Wailing Wall at today is what remains of the gigantic retaining wall that Herod built to expand the Temple Mount. When you go to Jerusalem and you step up on the Temple Mount, you'll notice that it's flat. That's because there is this giant um, um, retaining wall with catacombs underneath that are holding up. So he took what was a, a modest hill and made it into a giant plaza. 
The temple stood where the Dome of the Rock stands today. And under the Dome of the Rock is the place where the Holy of Holies stood in the ancient temple. This, again, is not the Muslims being pissy. This is the Muslims in the 8th century, 9th century, saying, this is a holy spot. We're going to build our mosque here. Do you understand? That's human nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it, we, you know, we, we have a problem here. Uh, <laughs> but, but that was the site of the temple. The, where the Wailing Wall is, is the outer retaining wall of the giant plaza that, the, that Herod created so that hundreds of thousands of people could come onto the Temple Mount for festivals, which is what happened uh, on Passover, on all the pilgrimage festivals. Even hundreds of thousands, maybe a million people would come to Jerusalem uh, on pilgrimage from everywhere. Um, and because the Jews, after the destruction, especially after another revolt against uh, Hadrian in the second century, um, were forbidden from even stepping on the Temple Mount, the closest they could get was the retaining wall, which is why it became known as the Wailing Wall, because they were not, no longer permitted to go to their holy place. They could only approach the outer wall and in t- of the retaining wall, and in time, that became the holy pilgrimage site for Jews because they couldn't go up on the Temple Mount. They were forbidden. Fascinating, isn't it? I, I'm glad I'm telling you all this. You don't, I, I assume some of you don't know this, so, uh, so it's worth talking about. Wow, okay. Um, so that's the first temple and the second temple in its two iterations. Uh, do you want to add something, Bob? No, no. Okay. Very, very well said. I don't know if it's so relevant, but in 1970, when I visited the, the mosque, yes. the uh, Palestinian guide explained that from this rock, the Jews would sacrifice, and this showed where the blood dripped down. So that's what the guide taught us in 1970. I don't know if any of you have heard that tourist Yes, that's that, that in... in uh, on, before positions hardened, any of us who went to Israel after the 67 war, until really until the Intifada in 1987, there was a lot of freedom of movement. There weren't hard boundaries there, and you could go on the Temple Mount, though very religious Jews would not do that for fear that they would be stepping into the space that had, become, that had been the Holy of Holies, which was forbidden to anyone except the high priest. Right? That's, do you follow what I'm saying? But anybody else who, who wasn't so worried about that um, could go and go in the mosque and see the rock where tradition has Abraham uh, bound Isaac and where um, uh, the sacrifices were made and where there were, uh, where according to accounts in the Mishnah, there were gutter systems and all kinds of things to deal with the massive amounts of blood that were being generated by the sacrifices. Because remember, it says in the Bible, when you slaughter an animal, you must not drink its blood. The blood belongs to me. It is the life force, says God. It is mine, not yours. So that's the origin of why Jews don't eat blood in their meat, why they drain it in kosher, kosher butchering. So 
if everybody was bringing their offerings to the temple, it was a, it was, there was, it says in the Mishnah that there were rivers of blood. And Herod had to figure out, if he was building this giant pilgrimage site, he had to figure out how to deal with that and also how to bring fresh water to the site because it was so much ritual cleansing that had to happen. You're also supposed to go in the mikvah before you... So when you, when you, when you become immersed in the um, archaeology of Jerusalem, which I have been for many years, it's really fascinating to watch, to look for the traces of the aqueducts that Herod brought and of the gutters that were made. And of the, it's incredible. But it wasn't, of course, for human blood. Which no. The, the Palestinian guide made it clear. Oh, I didn't understand you. No, 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 no. Oh, the Palestinian guide said it was for human blood. Yeah, that's where the Jews sacrificed humans. <laughs> oh. oh, all the Christian babies. Wow. I don't think you necessarily misunderstood him, but maybe in 1970 he was a little more uh, uh, copacetic about it. I don't know. But certainly the Palestinians' official line is that the Jews never had a temple there. That, right, well, it's kind of related. And in, in, in an attempt to delegitimize one claim in favor of another. Yeah. Because that stone is also the place where Muhammad, on his yes. night journey, jumped on his flying steed from uh, Mecca or Medina to that spot and then rose up to heaven. Once again, in non-historical language, that's mythical thinking, it's a holy spot. So if we haven't gotten hardened into the positions that there's only one holy spot, but that there are holy mountains everywhere, then you want to you wanna be on that holy mountain, yeah? Yes? We, we were there in 1973, and we didn't know any of this. We knew that was a really great place we wanted to see. And we got there, uh, a lot of religious people tried to stop us. We, they had tried to stop. And we said, no, we came all this way. <laughs> and, so, and not knowing, and we couldn't understand why, why God forbid. God forbid you should step on the spot that was the Holy of Holies. We went, and, and, and for them that was, that. yeah. We couldn't understand it at all, but we knew we wanted to see this. Well, that was why. Hey, yes, Buck. On one of my archaeological trips to Israel. Oh, just one sec. Yeah. I, I just said, just maybe the Kohen. Only the Kohen HaGadol. Only one person was permitted to go in that, and that was the high priest, the Kohen HaGadol. We don't have a Kohen HaGadol anymore. And it was only on the Holy of Holies. Yeah, and it was only on the Holy of Holies, on, on, on Yom Kippur. So, yes, yes, Bob. On one of my archaeological trips to Israel, I went in an aqueduct that was built from Hebron That's right. to Jerusalem to bring water. Herod's engineering. Hebron may be 300 feet higher than Jerusalem is and is a place where with water sources and where it rains a lot. So like 10 miles away or so? Yeah, 15? Mm. Yeah, something like that. Herod's engineers built an aqueduct that loses like one inch over every 100 meters or something like that and to successfully bring a steady supply of water, which Jerusalem did not have, miles down this tiny incline to Jerusalem. And those aqueducts have been... Um, uh, what's the word? Excavated, and uh, you can see them. You can see them. it's very cool, very cool. 
Uh, Stu? This has a little bit of historical information. When Maeve, myself, and Ezra were living in West Babylon. <laughs> Long Island. <laughs> across the street from us was a, was a Lutheran family. And the, the, the man that said, you know, it's true that the Jews at one time did sacrifice Christian babies. So that was something that came through the history as being true by certain people who were totally ignorant. And they continued that, that theory, that Jews were sacrificing Christian babies for part of their religion. That's known in, in, in uh, anti-Semitic, uh, uh, in anti-Semitism as the blood libel. Mm -hmm. The blood libel is that when the Jews make their matzah, matzah for, for Passover, they need the blood of Christian babies. And the, there were blood libels right into the 20th century. It's very, it's a very, um, it's still very alive. Uh, and is clearly, to me, clearly to me, a, uh, a take on the Jew Jews having killed Jesus, on Jesus saying, this is my blood when you drink the wine, and this is my body when you, drink the, when you eat the wafer, which is a matzah, right? Because it's connected, it's unleavened wafer, it's connected back to Passover. So it's not a leap to uh, get all that mushed together into Jews killing Christian babies for their blood so they can eat their matzah, right? And then that's still really alive. Yes, Anne? Is that thought oral tradition, or is that written down somewhere? I'm sure some pope wrote that down. This was, we're talking, we're, again, you know, I've had this interfaith year. Uh, do you read Larry Bush's, uh, some of you might get his daily thing on a Jew in history called Judeo. Do you get it? You'd really enjoy it. Um, I highly recommend it. It's called Judeo, J-E-W-D-A-Y-O, and it just doesn't cost anything, and you get a daily thing in your inbox about something, somebody in Jewish history. A couple days ago, it was about Pope Innocent uh, of the year 1200, um, and his headline was, Innocent Proclaims the Jews Guilty. I thought that was a very good headline. <laughs> he was the one who instituted the claim that the Jews had killed Jesus, and therefore, it's in the year 1200, and therefore, needed, their presence in the world would be one of, de of, of degradation and depravity to show what it's like when you reject Jesus or you kill our Lord. That official Catholic doctrine was only overturned in 1965 wow. when the Second Vatican Council overturned that decree from the year 1200. Mm -hmm. So this was, this was official doctrine. Mm -hmm. So uh, if that's official doctrine, then it's not a stretch to say the Jews are killing Christian babies and using their blood for matzahs. So, oh well. Um, okay, so now let me hand this out. <laughs> Take one and pass it along. There should be enough. Right, do you want to try to disprove the claim? It's not going to work. Take them to the matzah factory just to show them. I'm sure you've got some secret back room. That's the way these things work. There are plenty. Are there plenty? Oh, they're coming.
This is the prophet Zechariah. Oh, the JPS Tanakh. Okay. Look on the page that has the seven on it. Chapter seven and chapter eight, as opposed to the one that. Yeah, in the fourth year of King Darius. So now another interesting little excursion. This is the prophet Zechariah. Um, Zechariah. He is a post-exilic prophet. That means after the Babylonian exile. He's one of the last of the books of the prophets. He's writing after the Jews have been permitted by King Darius of Persia to come back, right? So this is probably in the 5th century BCE, the 400s, and they've come back from Babylonian exile. That's the prophet Zechariah. One of the interesting things about this is, I guess I'm doing a lot of history today. In the fourth year of King Darius, on the fourth day of the ninth month, Kislev, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. So, Kislev is the ninth month. That's the month of Hanukkah, everybody. The first thing to note is that in the pre-exilic books of the Bible, the months have different names. Spring is called Aviv. Right? That's the Hebrew word for spring, the spring month. They have different names. The, after they come back from, the Babylon, from Babylonian exile, they have adopted the Babylonian calendar. And all of the months that we know of as the Jewish months are exactly the ancient Babylonian months. The Jewish lunar solar calendar is the Babylonian calendar. Um, there's some evidence that um, the ninth of Av, I was reading in Arthur Waska's book about the holidays called Seasons of Our Joy, there studies in ancient Babylonia that the ninth of Av was a holy day in the um, Babylonian calendar, uh, a day of in midsummer of bonfires and uh, um, I, they, I don't know too much about it, but it was on the Babylonian calendar just as the first day of the seventh month, Tishrei, that's the Babylonian name, was in ancient Babylonia a day uh, for re, uh, that, had to, that had to do with um, re, um, uh, what's the right word? Consecrating the king. So when we talk about Hamelech on Rosh Hashanah, the king, you can, I can picture the Jews of Babylonia saying, we're going to celebrate this holiday because we're part of Babylonian society, but we've got our own king of kings who we're going to enthrone. That's the word. It was the enthroning uh, of the king. So it's fascinating to study what we do know about the ancient Babylonian calendar and realize that the Jewish calendar that we think of as the Jewish calendar was the Babylonian calendar and that it was adopted by the Jews when Babylonia was the, um, the superpower, thank you. Um, 
Is it, there it, anyone else using the same calendar as the Jews today? No. no. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. We're, we retain it, but no one else is using this calendar with these names of months anymore, unless I don't know enough about Iranian or Iraqi culture. I, I guess I need to look into that. Mm-hmm. Um, but our calendar was laid out far in advance of Babylonia in the Torah. Our holy days. Um, and our months? No. No. Now, that's why scholars, not all of whom are right, <laughs> right, but people who are attempting to figure this out, that's why they put the date of the final composition of the Torah often during or just after the Babylonian exile. Because, because it's clear that this was the Babylonian calendar. And it's clear that in some of the older Torah texts that we assume are older, different names of the months are used, but then these names become normative after the exile, that it's quite possible that the Torah was edited over time, revised, and came to use the calendar and retroject it back into ancient times. There's a lot of evidence for that, uh, so that you can't read the Torah as a contemporaneous historical document. You probably need to read it as a document that's being finally redacted some centuries after the initial events took place and were passed on and as, as a, as a um, sacred storytelling tradition. Yes, Bob? Did the Babylonians have a Sabbath day of rest? This is what I found out because I was reading about it. The Babylonians had this lunar month, which has 29 days, right? Apparently, they had a seventh day something. And that for, for three weeks, up to the 21st day, and then, up, and then the last week, for four weeks, the, the beginning, the, the new moon, seven days, seven days, seven days, and then they had an eight or nine day before starting the new moon again. So it appears that the Babylonians had some seven-day cycle linked. I, know, I just was reading about this today on, on an encyclopedia site. So it, it sounded good. So it makes sense. So that, but it wasn't called Shabbat. It wasn't Shabbat. There is a Babylonian word called Shabbat, Sabatu, or Shabbatu, which seems to have referred to the full moon of each month. So we have some understanding that maybe the Jews, a tiny community, under the aegis of this superpower, are both adopting and adapting their, um, the, the larger cultural uh, um, um, organization into their own, similar to what we do know more about under the Romans and Greeks, because there's just more evidence, more that the Jews of the Hellenistic and Roman period certainly were adapting all kinds of cultural forms, along with at least a thousand Greek loan words into Hebrew of that time, including as we've discussed the Passover Seder, which has I think I think we can say has been proven at this point to be an adaptation of a of a Hellenistic um, meal called a symposium. Um, and much other evidence that Jews have always adapted and then 
incorporated into our own ongoing, always changing culture, uh, whatever the super, the, whatever the, 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 the dominant civilization that we live in at the time is. And certainly that's happening in Israel right now. Um, uh, to the, you know, to, to the um, bemoaning of folks who want to, who, who don't want this much uh, cable channels showing, you know, American shows in Israel. It keeps happening. Um, we also influence the culture. Pardon? We also... We also, we also influence the culture. It's, the Sabbath is probably still something we can lay claim to. That's right. We influence the culture, then we're influenced by it. Carol and I are going to teach a course next December on, on uh, uh, the uh, development of musical theater. We're calling it the Torah of Broadway because 95% is for sure. were Jews yeah. who are creating this American art form. So it's a fascinating cycle. So I'm a Reconstructionist rabbi because Reconstructionism in the, in the um, I mean, this is related to conservative Judaism as well, is a modern movement that embraces critical historical study. And so can, can we claim continuity without having to claim that the way we do it is the way it's always been done? Because for me, that's a more uh, reality-based approach. I was studying the Chabad.org calendar to catch up on the mythic history. And they're amazing because in a parallel universe to mine, they are claiming all of, these, all of the mythical Jewish events as history. They give them dates. This is the date when the spies came back and it's on the count. They give us, they have a date for everything and they claim it as history. And if our, uh, our Jewish inherited custom contradicts history, they adjust the historical dates to reflect the custom. For example, our, our tradition says that we were in exile for 70 years in Babylonia. Um, why 70? Because 70 is a biblical number. You know, there are 70 languages in the world. 70 is a number that means sort of a full cycle. It's 10 times 7. In, and those are two of the key numbers in Judaism. We know it wasn't 70 because the kings are mentioned who were in charge at the time, and we have external evidence to date them. So we know it wasn't 70 years. But that doesn't bother Chabad's site at all. They just ignore the external historical evidence to put in the dates they want. It's really amazing. I was having a fun time this morning researching all this. Uh, they are committed to mythicized history to the degree that they will simply say it's history. And uh, the only, it's fun, but the only problem is, is people go to that site and it says history. So that's another interesting issue that came up. Um, yes? Chapter 7 of Zechariah is probably is in the, um, well, the fourth year of King Darius, on the fourth day of the ninth month. That's somewhere in the fifth century BCE. 
450 BCE, something like that. So it's after Cyrus? Yes, Cyrus let them come back. And the return, historically, the return was not like a big parade. It was a, a couple of or several waves of Jews deciding to come back from Babylonia to Judea. So it actually happens over the course of maybe 50 or 60 years. And Darius is the son of Cyrus. Right. Okay. Right. He's the son of Cyrus? I believe so. Okay. I got it. I believe so. Huh. Phew. Just as a quick aside, the Chabad, what is Chabad's motive for? <laughs> um, they do not want to show in any way that the rabbinic tradition is anything but factual and correct and historical. They need, for them, it's not okay to separate um, uh, history from, what's the word I'm looking for? Because I don't want to demean it at all. Not even stories, uh, from, um, from traditional accounts, right? History is a modern form. The modern, the modern study of history is only a couple hundred years old, where there's an attempt, however flawed it is, to be objective about when and what happened. Um, uh, that's not how the world operated until the modern era. And Chabad doesn't like it because it contradicts the inherited Jewish tradition. So they're not going to acknowledge it. But in their particular way, they're going to sort of acknowledge it by calling this history. Um, Do they take the age of the earth according to the... Uh, yes. Their fourth yes. Years? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Take a look. Go look at This Week in History on Chabad.org. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. And the reason I was looking there is here's what Jewish history, this, here's what Jewish tradition does with these sacred dates. They harmonize, or I don't know what they harmonize, they, they assign biblical things that happen in the biblical story that match up with the quality. So now we're of the historical date. So on the 9th of Av, uh, close to the 9th of Av, it says here, take a look. So this is the word of Zechariah um, in the 5th century BCE. Look at verse 3. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah when, well, when Bethel, Shazarezer, and Regamelech and his men sent to entreat the favor of the Lord, and to address this inquiry to the priests of the house of the Lord and to the prophets. Shall I weep and practice abstinence in the fifth month, as I have been doing all these years? I'll read a little more. Thereupon the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and lamented in the fifth and seventh month of these 70 years, did you fast for my benefit? And when you eat and drink, who but you does the eating, and who but you does the drinking? Okay, here's my point. It's talking about um, a fast of the fifth month and the seventh month. Now, turn over your page for a second, and look in the left-hand column at, the little, at verse 18. And the word of the Lord of the hosts came to me, saying, Thus said the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth month, the fast of the seventh month, and the fast of the tenth month 
shall become occasions for joy and gladness, happy festivals for the house of Judah, but you must love honesty and integrity. Okay, so what are these four fasts? In the Jewish calendar, besides Yom Kippur, which is ordained in the five books of Moses, there are four other fast days that were instituted in, during the Babylonian exile. We know this from here, and we know this from the book of Kings, where it also, which is the historical account of the exile, which names these dates. The fourth month, if Nisan is the first month, the fourth month is the 17th of Tammuz. We are just finishing the month of Tammuz. That's, we're in this period called the three weeks between the 17th of Tammuz and the 9th of Av. The 17th of Tammuz is the day, according to the Book of Kings, when the first temple walls were breached. And that was made into a fast day. That's the fast of the fourth month. The fast of the fifth month isn't Tisha B'Av. It's actually, it says in the Book of Kings, it was on the 8th of Av. It was only the rabbis who later harmonized and put it all on one day. Just like, I would say, Lincoln's birthday and Washington's birthday have become President's Day. You know, So eventually they put all this stuff on one day. But that was the fast of the fifth month. The fast of the seventh month is not Yom Kippur. It's something called Tzom Gedalia on the third of Tishrei. Gedalia, as we read about in the Book of Kings, was the leader of the Judeans who gets assassinated during this period. And the fast of the tenth month is known as Asarabatevet, the tenth of Tevet in the winter, which marks another, I'm trying to remember which, uh, another terrible day in the downfall of the first temple. So the Jews of Babylonia instituted these four fast days as commemoration days, and they're known as the four fasts, the four minor fasts, because they're only from, except for Tisha B'av, they're only sun up to sundown. After the second temple was destroyed, the rabbis already had this tradition. And they linked up the destruction of the second temple and the first temple so that both destructions are remembered on these days. There's, a, there's a, this strange occurrence in Jewish history that the Jews of England were expelled in the year 1290 on the 9th above. Did the ruler know? Who knows? And the most famous one, 1492. 1492. The 9th of Av was the day that Ferdinand Isabella decreed the Jews would have to leave Spain or convert or die. That, they had to know. Yeah. Um, so the layers of Tisha B'Av keep adding up. In modern, since modern Israel has been founded, there's a debate over whether to retain these minor Fasting. Um, and why? Because look at Zechariah. He's have, this is his prophecy. Let's, um, uh, let's turn back to the other side of the page. If you're going to acknowledge, if you're going to acknowledge a certain day or, or give it respect or give it, why fast? What's the, what's the, um, Oh, fasting is a sign of, of, of mourning, grief. This is, a, this is not a holiday. This is a, 
a, a commemoration of a disaster. And, and, and is there some kind of um, uh, uh, premise for why fasting? I mean, I mean, how did that get attached to it? Well, it's not just fasting. You deny yourself all pleasures. Oh, so it's a denial. Yeah, it's a day where you deny yourself all pleasures. No bathing, no sex, no, no eating. Uh, that's how you mark so it. So when they say fast, yeah, we're talking about denial, first of all. Yeah, okay. as I understand it. Yeah. So, on the other side of the page, what we just read yeah. were the four fast days. Yes. Okay, so it said at the end of that sentence, um, the fast month of the seventh month and the fast of the tenth month shall become occasions for joy and gladness, happy festivals for the house of Judah. But you must love honesty and integrity. Right. What, is that, what does the joy uh, have to do? Come back with me to this side. Come back with me. We're going to get there. I'm showing, you this, I'm showing you this text to show you that, first of all, that these fast days have been around since the 5th century BCE. Um, uh, and, we're, and Mark, and so it's fascinating to me that we Jews, and I don't know how much we'll get to this today, that we Jews ha have this, um, almost in our, I would say, in our cultural DNA, this idea of exile and return as something that's fundamental to our experience of being a people and being, and being human, actually. So if you look on, we're back on the front side of the page, in verse 8, on the left-hand side of the column, not chapter 8, but verse 8. And the word of the Lord to Zechariah continued. Thus says the Lord of hosts, execute true justice. Deal loyally and compassionately with one another. Do not defraud the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor. Do not plot evil against one another. But... They refused to pay heed, meaning the, 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 the Judeans, the Jews. They presented a balky back and turned a deaf ear. They hardened their hearts like adamant against heeding the instruction and admonition that the Lord of hosts sent to them by his spirit through the earlier prophets. This is explaining why the first destruction happened. The earlier prophets are the ones from before Babylonian exile. And a terrible wrath issued from the Lord of hosts. Even as he called, they would not listen. So, said the Lord of hosts, let them call and I will not listen. And I dispersed them among all those nations which they had not known. And the land was left behind them desolate without any who came and went. They caused a delightful land Eretz Chemda, to be turned into a desolation. This is how the Jews from, uh, understood their exile. Uh, that it was because they did not, according to the words of the prophets, create the just society that the Torah commanded them to create. Uh, and so this is classic. Uh, and Zechariah says, but in the Jewish literature, always, God never gives up on us. No matter how terribly we failed and the consequences of our failure, which is our dispersion. We still haven't created the justice society. That's my point. Mm -hmm. Are we ready to give up these fast days yet? Not if you read the fine print here. 
if you follow what I'm saying. When, when yeah. God says we're supposed to create a just society, uh, my understanding is that we're supposed to create it amongst the Jews, that it doesn't extend beyond Judaism. We haven't done it among the Jews either. <laughs> right. In the, in the biblical text, that is the understanding. But there are plenty of laws in the Bible, as we've discussed, about how you need to treat that everyone is created in the divine image. And even though the Torah and these laws only apply to us, you can't defraud the stranger. The stranger, for example, is the resident alien among you. But you're right. In biblical context, they're only dealing with their, their, their own. Um, in this portion. Pardon? In this portion. In this portion, but in general. In general. It's... A mo- it's, again, it's modern Judaism, our version of modern Judaism, that wants to expand this understanding along with our expanding understanding of our interconnection with everybody. Right? That's a product of living in the modern world where, remember, I said before the uh, uh, um, <coughs> emancipation from the ghetto, you knew who the Jews were and you knew who you had to be careful about out there. And, now all, and then in the course of a few decades, we found ourselves living next door to Christians. And, you know, it's a whole new paradigm. This paradigm seems to have existed for a moderate amount of time during the, what's called the Golden Age of Spain. When, not in modern terms, but in medieval terms, there was incredible discourse, freedom of discourse among Muslims and Jews and among Christians and Jews and even Christians and Muslims and Jews to a certain degree. That lasted a couple hundred years, and uh, that's a fascinating study. Um, but in general, until modern times, there was no conception other than, no, of course we're talking about ourselves. The rest of the world is like, that's not our, not our business. Now we have to, mod- modernity has forced us to either reject this or expand it. Many people, many people reject it. But I want to expand it. And that's a normal view from every tribe. Every tribe. This is modernity affecting every pre-modern view. And the reaction is either to batten down the hatches and try to retain your pre-modern view, or to open up to what's called in the biggest sense liberalism, and understand now that it's a different paradigm that we're living in that requires us to expand our previous point of view. so, but it's conditional, right? Um, they, they, they lost the land because of their immoral and unjust um, uh, society. So, chapter 8. The word of the Lord of hosts came to me and said, Thus said the Lord of hosts, I am very jealous, or you could say zealous for Zion, fiercely zealous for her. Thus, said the Lord. Now we're on... The column says 8.3. I have returned to Zion and I will dwell in Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be called the city of faithfulness. Ir ha-emet. City of truth. Uh, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called Har HaKodesh. The holy mountain. But this is the way the prophet, but God's love always ultimately trumps God's strict justice. That is the biblical and the Jewish mindset. So 
that's why in chapter 8, Zechariah says, but we've come back because God has said. In other words, he's put forward a rationale for why we were exiled. Right. And the rationale is, moral, is based on our immorality and injustice. And now God has said, okay, come back and try again. Okay. I always wondered what hosts mean. What oh, tzvaot. Um, hosts it is another word for armies, but it refers in the Torah to the heavenly array. Adonai Tzvot means the Lord of the heavenly hosts. In other words, the, the, the angels and the stars and the constellations, the countless armies of stars in the sky. The universe. The universe. Yeah. That would be the better translation. Yeah, it's Lord of the universe. Tzavaot means hosts, but Tzava means army. So host is a King James kind of word. Hosts in the sense of being a host, you know. I like it. I like it. I can picture many ten-year-olds trying to figure out what the Lord of Hosts is and coming up with really interesting stories. Howard Johnson's. You can do Howard Johnson, yeah. And here's one of the most famous passages from Zechariah. Thus said the Lord of the universe, there shall yet be old men and women in the squares of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of their great age. And the squares of the city shall be crowded with boys and girls playing in the squares. Thus said the Lord of hosts, though it will seem impossible to the remnant of this people in those days, shall it also be impossible to me, declares the Lord of the universe? Thus said the Lord of the universe, I will rescue my people from the lands of the east and from the lands of the west, and I will bring them home to dwell in Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, be'emet uvitzdaka, in truth and in justice. And when you go to Jerusalem today, you see old people right. with canes. Oh, yes. That's why, again, there's stuff we don't understand, everybody. So I always just like, it's amazing, isn't it? Yep. However, if you take this out of context, you forget what makes it fundamentally Jewish. Let's go on. How is this going to happen? Thus said the Lord of hosts, take courage, techezakna. You who now hear these words, which the prophets spoke when the foundations were laid for the rebuilding of the temple, the house of the God of the universe, Lord of the universe. For before that time, the earnings of men were nil and profits from beasts were nothing. He's saying, look, we did it. We built the temple. And again, you can think about 1948 when you're scrounging for uh, uh, used World War I guns, you know, or whatever it is. Uh, it was not safe to go about one's business on account of enemies, and I, will, and I set all men against one another. But now I will not treat the remnant of this people as before, declares the Lord of hosts. But what it sows shall prosper. The vine shall produce its fruit. The ground shall produce its yields. The sky shall provide their moisture. I will bestow all these things upon the remnant of this people. And just as, now, he's, now he's echoing to the earliest blessing to Abraham. And just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so when I vindicate you, you shall become a blessing. Have no fear. Take courage. For thus said the Lord of hosts, just as I planned to afflict you and did not relent 
when your fathers provoked me to anger, said the Lord of hosts. So at this time I have turned and planned to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Have no fear. This is the kicker, though. Here's your job. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to one another. Render true and perfect justice in your gates. Do not contrive evil against one another. Do not love perjury, because all these are things that I hate. Okay, so as always, the prophetic vision is conditional. So all this is, these, are, these are all the words of Zachariah. Zachariah okay. But it's classic. Mm-hmm. He is right in the... It's totally classic of the prophetic literature from the 8th century BCE to the 5th century BCE when these were being spoken, that God's love for us is unconditional in terms of it being forever, but God's love for us is, and how we, whether we flourish in our land or not, is conditional on our pursuit of these core aspects of God's commandments to us. Not whether we're separating milk and meat, that's not what, uh, right? And I'm not saying it's fine to eat kosher, but that's not what Zachariah is asking us to do. Do you follow what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So if anybody's going to trumpet, based on this text, our, our reestablishment of the state of Israel, then they have to read the whole thing, right? It's a vision of a just society. And if we're going to use this text, then let's, let's read it all. I, li- I really like that, because to me it's a total miracle that we're back. And for me, because I'm so identified as a Jew, it's we, and I'm back, you know, it's like I wasn't. I was, Israel existed when I was born, but, you know, this is my story that I've made my own. And at the same time, there's a critique of what it means to live at covenant with God in the promised land, and the critique is clear and consistent throughout the Torah. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty cool, actually, and pretty stirring. So with all the prophets, the prophets are saying basically this. They're all saying this. Yes, you can find this, this, this kind of line in each of the prophets. This is the core value of what we're supposed to Right. So, for instance, the Haftorah, the special prophetic reading for next week, which is the day before Tisha B'av, is from Isaiah. And this is the passage always read on the Shabbat before Tisha B'av. It's called Shabbat Chazon, the Shabbat of Isaiah's vision. And Isaiah's vision says, um, Oh, how the faithful city played the whore. Once she was so full of justice and righteousness dwelt there, but now murderers. Your rulers are rebels, cronies (laughs) of thieves. Every one of them loves bribes and is avid for graft. They do not decide the orphan's case. The widow's cause never comes before them. Therefore, says God of heaven's hosts, the mighty one of Israel, enough. Um, I, again and again, I will raise my hand to you and smelt away your dross as if with lie and rid you of your slag. Whew. That was like a New York legislature. Well, yes. um, then he says... Bring me no more futile offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure your festivals along with your evil. 
I hate your new moons and your festivals. They're a burden to me. I can bear them no more. When you stretch out your hands, I will avert my eyes from you. However much you pray, I will not listen while your hands are filled with blood. Wash yourselves. Put your evil doings away. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Relieve the oppressed. Uphold the orphan's right. Take up the widow's cause. Come now, says the Eternal One. Let us reason together. That's, that's, you know. This is what Pat Robertson does when he blames things and says, God, God's doing this because. I'm doing a selective reading. I'm selecting this reading. He's selecting his readings. But anyway, I, I hope you're getting my thrust here. Yeah, so it's like if we're going back to what Anne was asking. Yes. So if you do this, now look at verse 18. If you speak the truth, render justice in your gates. The word of the Lord of the universe came to me. Thus says the Lord of the universe. Then these four fast days, which were instituted because of our exile, which happened according to the prophets because we did not create this society. Those four fast days shall become occasions for joy and gladness. Happy festivals for the house of Judah. So they get transformed. They get transformed, but... When we get... But... So it says, it's a great Hebrew. Yehiyeh levet Yehuda lesasson ulesimcha for joy and gladness, lemoadim tovim, happy holidays. Ve'ha'emet, but ha'emet ve'ha'shalom, truth and peace, ahavu, you must love. Um, and then his vision really expands. This is really out there. This guy's, so thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples and the inhabitants of many cities shall yet come, and the inhabitants of one shall go to the other and say, let us go and entreat the favor of yod let us seek the Lord of the universe. I will go too. And the many peoples and the multitude of nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days when they come, ten men from nations of every tongue shall take hold. They will take hold of every Jew by a corner of his cloak and say, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Does that imply that they're going to become converted? Not in Zechariah. No. Um, it doesn't know, we don't know what he means, except that this is... You'll live better. No, 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 this isn't... This is a utopian vision. This isn't illegal. This is like... This is the... This is preaching. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. This is, this is preaching. Or as my friend Reggie said, this is church. Right? We're going to church. Um, and uh, the amazing thing about it is... It's a vision of when this, when this justice is manifest and peace, everybody's going to want to grab hold of you. My image of that is, get off of me. You know, it's like, that's how I feel when I hear that, but that's another story. Um, uh, everybody's going to want to grab onto you and say, let's go up to this holy mountain. It's preaching, right? It's not legal stuff. Um, and I wanted to share this with you uh, because it's so stirring. This is, this, is, this is an amazing chapter in Zechariah. Uh, it must have been the feeling when the UN was first inaugurated. Yeah, that yeah. was going to be yes. a change of everything. Change the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Sounds, Sounds like John Lennon. Zachariah, 450 BCE, demanding in the Jewish way, which has its downside, everything has its dark side, if our ability to live peacefully and safely in our land is dependent on our moral behavior, and if when we don't behave morally we're expelled from the land, that can also um, lead to very challenging interpretations like, say, because we're dealing with the wake of the Holocaust. The Holocaust happened because we weren't just in moral. It doesn't hold up. It just doesn't hold up. So we have to take this not literally. We have to understand that what Judaism demands of us is the creation of of a moral society. Um, And that the Judaism expresses that there are severe consequences when you don't. That doesn't necessarily explain every horror that happens in the world, and I don't think we have to reject it out of hand by being literal about it, but instead think of it as good preaching and take the thrust of it, which, as you heard from Isaiah, is not solely in Zechariah, but is throughout the books of the prophets in the Torah, and that our presence in our land isn't going to become a presence of um, fullness and joy until the, the orphan and the widow, until, the, until our leaders aren't living by graft and bribes, until, until, until. It's a vision, it's, it, it's a beautiful vision of a just society. Rob and then Amy. I mean, is, he, is he saying it takes all of us? Like, you know, you know everybody needs to come along to this to really have I think he's especially talking to the leadership, I think, but I'm saying this is preaching and it's ours to take and apply, right? I don't think there's a, you know, I don't think there's a single thing he means. Also, we can imagine that Zechariah is making this speech in Jerusalem in 450 and the streets and the squares are filled with people and he's saying, look, the prophecy came true, so now fulfill the Torah, everybody. It says, this is what it takes. And we can do the same. You know, we can stand in Jerusalem and say, mm-hmm. the vision, it, it's astounding. It's, it's amazing that we get to be here again and experience this. And now, listen to the word of God um, uh, in our own way. Uh, that's sort of what I'm getting from it, rather than trying to derive a single interpretation. Yeah, Amy. You know, um, in, in in reading this, it's uh, you know obviously uh, jumping to today's times, the way many people might say that the Jews are treating the Palestinians is not exactly um, kind or fair or according to the Torah, and um, I guess I'm I'm wondering why. The religious right in 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 um, who, who who take this so literally wouldn't say wouldn't want to behave according to the way mm-hmm. this is described. Mm-hmm. I won't speak for them. I'll just speak for me, which is to say that this is why for me there's no contradiction between loving Israel and demanding a high moral standard as a Jewish state. No contradiction. It's the Jewish way. The tricky part for me among the liberals and the left is that you have to love Israel, right, and critique. 
you can't critique and out of out of disgust or hatred. It has to be so. That's the that's the tricky line. So that puts us puts me. I say puts most humans in a internal tension, an internal conflict, almost. Uh, I'm thinking about this, you know, it's like how you treat your family. It, you know, you, you love them and you criticize them. But if you criticize them without loving them, they're going to blow you off. You know, if you love them without criticizing them, well, that's one way to keep the family together. But the consequences of suppressing and putting under the blanket a family's uh, dark secrets is, uh, has, we know the consequences. Uh, ultimately, it falls apart. Um, and so that's the way I look at it, is, rather, is that I want to take this prophetic vision, which is not just justice. It's also love of Israel. And, and it's not easy. But um, uh, I'm speaking now because on Monday and Tuesday, uh, I'm going to be in Philadelphia at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College because the Israel Task Force of the Reconstructionist Movement, um, which I agreed to chair, we're having our first uh, two-day meeting. It's about ten of us. And I've been calling all of the participants. What a wonderful group of people. And the politics extends from sort of the center to way over on the left. Um, but everybody's like, it's all the people who say, but I'm interested in talking about this. You know, as, and so it's really a great group. Uh, and as I've been talking to them, this has been crystallizing in my mind that we have this very challenging, very modern task of uh, both uh, of, of affirming and supporting Israel while standing up for the vision of Judaism, um, just as we would do anywhere else. So um, that's where I'll be on Monday and Tuesday. What's the agenda? The agenda is that in the year 2004, um, an earlier task force produced a report, a really excellent 50-page report on the Re Reconstructionist, um, I have to look up the title exactly, uh, Relationship with Israel or something like that. And at the time, one executive director had uh, left, and the new one hadn't come in yet, and the report disappeared into the black hole of organizational life. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so, oh yeah, yeah, but I mean, it was never ratified, it was never, now 10 years later, we have a new president, uh, Deborah Waxman, who I like very much, who's determined to get us back on track as a movement vis-a-vis -vis Israel, to have a clearly articulated um, uh, statement and then a plan of action. Not that we're going to change the world particularly, but so that we have integrity as uh, the, the liberal Zionist movement that we are. So, uh, so our first job which won't happen this 
Monday, Tuesday is gonna we're gonna sort of divvy it up and figure it out. Is to take the, our first assignment from the board of the Reconstructions Movement is to take this 2004 report, review it, suggest revisions as needed over the last 10 years. Things have changed to a certain degree, but when you read it, actually not much. Has changed that much. Uh, things have changed over the last 10 years. Make and then recommend an amended report to the board. Uh, that's our first task. The next tasks are that in our, we're a very small organization, the Reconstructionist Movement, so we are going to try to establish fruit, fr fruitful relationships with two or three uh, organizations in Israel that are um, uh, simpatico. There are some, there is, a, there is a growing movement of secular Israelis who are starting to start their own synagogues and study houses. And when you read their statements of um, intent, you realize that a secular Israeli is kind of like us. us. They, they're, they're not orthodox, but they care about being Jewish. And they're doing very innovative stuff. So we want to develop a relationship with them. And we've recruited to our board a couple of people who are involved in some very interesting coexistence uh, initiatives in Israel that will probably want to step so that we have two or three organizations that we're formally we're also going to we're also busy creating a formal relationship with a tour provider in Israel so that we can start uh, providing regular reconstructionist visits to Israel that pursue themes that we care about you have to understand that the reconstructionist movement is not only very small but for the last few years has been in disarray and so this is an attempt to kind of reboot our uh, Israel connections. So that's the sort of stuff we're going to be doing. Wow. Your brother's deep in the arc, sort of. Yeah. Her brother has uh, uh, been living in Israel for a very long time and is very involved in the kinds of initiatives that, that we care about. Uh, yeah. What are those initiatives? I guess that's why. I had no idea why I chose this passage today. But I'm prepping myself for my meeting. I'm totally prepping myself for my meeting in Torah. And you were my fortunate uh, uh, company while I figured out what I'm doing. <laughs> Diane? Oh, yeah, yes, too. That's what's wonderful about you. You do it for your own needs, but it also becomes our needs, and we can respond to that. That's nice. Thank you. That's very kind. It really matches over very kind. Thank you, Diane. So, in terms of you know, reading this ancient stuff and realizing it was the same, you know, we're still doing it, we're still doing it, the ups and downs and everything. So recently I was asking my brother, who has devoted his entire adult life to building a just... Pluralistic. Pluralistic state of Israel. I mean, his career and his, his whole life. He founded and, the Herzl Museum in... And, uh, you know, things are not going... As well as... <laughs> no, we're, they're not. They're not. We have quite the right-wing government that is yeah, uh, ignoring yeah. some of these principles. So recently I asked him, uh, does he feel sad, you know, that he devoted, he worked, he's worked so hard, you know. I mean, went over right out of college, very idealistic, you know, and um, he's worked so hard, and does he feel sad? And he said, no. He said, I said, well, you know, what if, like, the whole thing falls apart? He said, we fought the good fight. Go, David. And I thought, wow. <laughs> that's the, as far as I'm concerned, that's the only attitude one can take, is to fight the good fight, and then, you know, hope for the best. 
Because again, we don't know what's going to happen five years from now. It's yeah. not over yet. Yeah. Uh, you want to say something, Helen? I was going to say that. Thank you, uh, Diane. Somehow, does this help deal with the concept that I find always troubling uh, of being the chosen people? In other words, he's saying here, sort of like be the light unto the nations, sort of? The idea of the chosen people in the prophetic literature is that it's not some kind of great bonus we've gotten. It's it's a huge. Yes, it's used against us. And when we study Judaism and Christianity in the fall, we will learn how Christianity leverage the idea of the Jews as the chosen people into an epithet, right? It becomes part of anti-Semitism. But our chosenness here is actually a challenge. It's a moral standard that we have to uphold in order to retain our status as chosen. And he's, he's extending the same people from every nation and tongue will come. We will be a light into the nations. see that this is a good way to be. Yes. And maybe they'll... Yes, not that we keep kosher, but that we pursue a true and just society. Yeah. Yes, Anne. I remember reading, hearing, talking, whatever, about the fact that the chosen people doesn't mean God's favorite people. It means we were chosen to tell the world that there was just one God. Yes, that is the understanding in the Bible. But that the way to tell people that it's just one God isn't by evangelizing purely, it's by modeling. By modeling, right? Uh, And how do you model? We just read all about it, right? Um, Now, again, the idea of chosen people is a pre-modern idea. It is not at all clear to me that it's an, it's an idea we want to um, uh, uh, foreground, what's the right word for that? That we want to Promote. keep in the front and center of Judaism. They're all, Judaism has been around a long time. Remember, we've adapted over and over and over again. And there are many themes present in Jewish life. So it maybe it's time to de-emphasize this ancient idea of chosenness and bring other Jewish ideas which exist in here to the front. That again is what Reconstructionism uh, said out loud, which got Kaplan you know, in big trouble in the 20th century. D- does that make sense? Yes. We've talked a lot about modernity. There's no way to grapple with the Bible without acknowledging the changing worldview that happens over centuries and centuries. And how Ju- if Judaism has rejiggered itself to adapt to Babylonian society by taking on their calendar and holidays, to adapt to Greek society by adapting their customs, to make it through the Middle Ages somehow, and then to get into modernity and totally revamp ourselves, right? Being Jewish is completely different than it was 200 years ago. Utterly. Even the ones who are the keepers of the faith, as they call themselves, are living very different lives than they were 200 years ago. Then we, we want to do it with some intellectual integrity. Okay, so chosenness... It's time to uh, do, you know. But the tricky part, and this is very important, is that there's nothing wrong with calling yourself the chosen people. There's nothing wrong with it. What, it depends how you interpret what that means. If you're chosen, if you think of yourself as chosen to manifest a certain level of justice and integrity in the world, bless us. The chosen people became an epithet because of anti-Semitism. Not because the Jews were doing something wrong. 
It was very convenient for the Christians because the Jewish covenant for the Christians was superseded by the new covenant. And so the Jewish covenant became something to deride, something to show as being obsolete and degraded. And so chosenness, you Jews think you're the chosen people, became a, 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 a weapon. And we are the inheritors of that. So you cannot talk about these issues without thinking about the context of anti-Semitism as we discuss it. That's why, just as I talk about geopolitics, you can't talk about being Jewish in a vacuum. You have to, we have to be as broad-minded and experienced as we can be to have reasonable conversations about these things. Two more comments, then it's time to quit. Yes? Well, I, it was interpreted as arrogance. You know, in other words, they interpreted it, those Jews think they're better than everyone. It was attacked as arrogance, not interpreted. It was used for, because anti-Semitism wants to show that the Jews are uniquely uh, bad and responsible for the world's problems. Those arrogant sons of bitches. It was used, not interpreted. We didn't do this to ourselves. No, no, I don't mean we interpret. I meant others. Well, they interpreted it for their own venal ends. Okay, I just want to say, because we are so used to blaming ourselves that I'm not going to shut up about this. <laughs> yeah. I think this intellectual integrity is powerful. Thank you. It's a very powerful uh, characteristic for anybody. And it, it really brings it to a closing circle in which you opened it up with the nuclear deal with, with Iran. Let's approach it with intellectual integrity. And Keep... Thank you. Keep all of this in the background as you think about that stuff and as you read the news. Uh, whether it's whatever the big picture, the biggest picture you can keep, intellectually, historically, uh, metaphysically, do it. Can I give you a, a poetic picture? All right. To end this, it's a Rilke poem. This is one of my favorites, and it's um, translated by Robert Bly, and it's called "Just as the Winged Energy of Delight." Just as the winged energy of delight carried you over many chasms early on, now raise the daringly imagined arch holding up the astounding bridges. Miracle doesn't lie only in the amazing living through and defeat of danger. Miracles become miracles in the clear achievement that is earned. To work with things is not hubris when building the association beyond words. Denser and denser the pattern becomes. Be becoming carried along is not enough. Take your well-disciplined strengths and stretch them between two opposing poles because inside human beings is where God learns. <laughs> inside human beings is where God learns. Yeah. So Thank that you. reminds me of what, what our responsibility is at a poetic level. Right, thank you. And read this preaching as poetic as well. Yes, Bill. Yeah, this is, uh, assuming the class is over, I am reaching it out to my community. Oh, okay. I, I'm looking for a moving company. 